Good morning. Happy Resurrection Day to you. I want to take you back this morning to the, I think it was the early 90s, when the first book in this series came out. Many of you are familiar with them, the Dummies, for Dummies series, right? The first book was DOS for Dummies. And it focused, in the early life of these series, it focused on technical applications, computer applications and things like that. But it's since broadened out. There are, I believe, over 1,800 titles. They have sold over 250 million of these books. Like I said, it's really branched out. Um, and sometimes I don't get it. For instance, uh, consider this one. Cheese for dummies. I mean, I, I love cheese, but how hard is cheese? You unwrap the cheese, you slice the cheese if you have time, and then you eat the cheese. Anyway, um, some of them are downright dangerous. Success as a mediator for dummies. Do we really want dummies mediating our international crises? You know, President of the United States, President Obama, this is the President of Iran. We've got a few things to work out. Wait, let me consult my Success as a Mediator for Dummies book. I don't, it just doesn't seem safe to me. Nor does this. Military flight aptitude test for dummies. Really? We're going to train dummies to fly our military planes. Uh, uh, there's some, though, that to me just seem um, oxymoronish, impossible. Brain games for dummies. <laughs> like tic-tac-toe. I don't know. What, what, is this? what is that? What could that possibly be? Or how about this one? Quantum physics for dummies. <laughs> I... I don't know. The series seems to have run amok. But this morning, I do want to add one title to the series they haven't done. This morning, what I'm going to title this message is Easter for Dummies. And unless you feel uh, looked down upon by that, you need to know that on every one of these titles, according to the publisher, they go to great pains to emphasize that the Dummies books are not literally for dummies. The subtitle for every book is A Reference for the Rest of Us. And that's what I hope you'll experience this morning. If you're not an expert on all things Easter, this morning that you'll get it, that Easter will make sense out of that. Um, Easter needs a little encouragement for most of us. Honestly, Easter is one of the toughest things to believe I've ever run across. Um, that a man died, an innocent man died for the sins of others and then was raised from the dead on the third day. That's a tough sell. Even as we heard read by Jonathan just a few minutes ago, the disciples, when the women brought them the news, they would not believe. It seemed to them as nonsense. So today what I want to do is drop in on one of those disciples' struggles to believe and see how it is that the resurrected Christ helps them believe. Because that's that's what the resurrected Jesus did, and that's what he does. He helps us believe. So if you'll open your Bibles to Luke 24, if you have one, or you can follow along on the screen behind me as we go. I'd like to pray for us, and we'll, we'll dive in. God, please be kind to us, that that which is nearly unbelievable, we might be able, by your mercy, to believe. That which is so hard for us to grasp, we might grasp. And we do we do need your help with this, and we ask for it now in Christ's name. Amen. 
I'd like, up, like to pick up the story not on Easter morning, that Easter Sunday morning, but later that afternoon when two of Jesus' followers are walking along one of the dusty roads just outside of Jerusalem. It was called the Emmaus Road. And they were leaving Jerusalem where all of the uh, events of that weekend, the crucifixion of Christ on Friday, his resurrection that Sunday morning, had all taken place in Jerusalem. But these two disciples have left the city. They're journeying now towards a city called Emmaus. In verse 13 of Luke 24, we read, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. The discussion, it seems, based on the language that's used, is this was a vigorous discussion, almost an argument between these two disciples. But more than anything, I would imagine the tone of the discussion, this had to be a sad conversation. Um, the, the author Luke tells us that down a, just a couple of verses. He says, they stood still looking sad. Okay. This, was, um, this was a very, very sad day for these. But another clue as to the disposition of their conversation is their direction in Matthew's gospel, another of the accounts of the life of Jesus, when he talks about the resurrection, we find the angels giving some very specific res post-resurrection instructions to the women who discovered that Jesus had risen. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So the angels essentially say, Jesus has risen. He's going to meet up with you in Galilee. Go to Galilee. Now, our disciples are not on the way to Galilee. They're on the way to Emmaus. Emmaus is due west of Jerusalem. Think Durham. Okay. Now, uh, where they're supposed to be going, Galilee is about 70 miles north. Think Richmond. So what we have here are our two, two guys supposed to be going to Richmond, but they start out by walking to Durham. This is not a walk of faith. This is a sad walk of disappointment. Um, it is two despondent followers with no one to follow anymore. They're headed home with their tails between their legs. And then the story, though it's interesting, it takes a kind of unexpected turn in the next few verses. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus himself, drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding, conversation that you are holding with one another as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Again, Catch the depth of their sorrow. This has to be the worst weekend of their lives. Everything had come tumbling down. Every hope was destroyed. You know, they'd been following Jesus for who knows how long. And as you'll see in a minute, they put their hope fully in him to be their redeemer. But now, they, all they knew was that he was dead. And that he had been crucified, no less. A torturous death reserved for the lowest of criminal scum. 
But it's precisely at this point that Jesus comes to them. Now, it's interesting that Jesus bothers with these two at all. They are at best low-level followers of Jesus. We only know the name of one of them, and he is never mentioned in the Bible again. These are essentially nobodies. These are regular people, just like you and just like me. And Jesus, the risen Christ, seeks these two out. I don't know if you've ever thought about the collection of people that the resurrected Christ pursues between his resurrection and 40 days till he ascends to heaven. It's interesting to think about it. He, he tracks down Peter, the one who denied him, not once, but three times. He tracks down his own brother, James, who doubted him. Thomas, who was renowned for doubting him. A group of women, the first witnesses who were not exactly the upper tier of society. Jesus seeks out each of these, honestly, people just like you and me. And he helps them believe. That is what the resurrected Jesus does. Even to this day, he helps people believe. Our story continues in verse 18. One of them, named Cleopas, answered Jesus. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. You notice their language there. We had hoped. Um, clearly now, their greatest hopes have been absolutely shattered. This great prophet whom they hoped would be their redeemer had been horribly killed. And it's been three days. Surely their hope diminished with each passing day. And then they add this puzzling statement. He says, moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Women play a huge role in the resurrection story, really in the ministry of Jesus generally. But in this case, they were, they were the very first that the risen Christ appeared to. If you're making a story up, okay, you would not write it this way. Women were not reliable witnesses in Jesus' day. Um, they didn't have that kind of legal standing um, in the culture. But here, um, they do. They are the witnesses. But even the disciples didn't believe the women. Jonathan read it to you earlier. Back in verse 10 of our passage, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seem to be them an idle tale. Some of your Bibles render that nonsense. And they did not believe them. There are some commentators that suggest that one of our two disciples on the Emmaus Road could have been a woman. And that it's entirely possible that this was a husband and wife having this vigorous discussion as they walked along the road. If that were the case, 
then you know there was fixing to be some serious I told you so's once the women were proved to be right about the resurrection. Well, in, in spite of all that, these two disciples are still in disbelief. They are looking sad. They're headed on the road of unbelief to Emmaus, not to Galilee. And I can't help but wonder if they're thinking, I wish we'd been there. I wish we'd been the ones that saw, saw him outside the tomb. I wish we had seen the angels. Um, I wish somebody would have seen them besides these hysterical women. Okay. Now, there's a general biblical principle that comes to us from this passage, and that is this. Guys, when it comes to spiritual insights, believe the women. Okay? Believe the women. Trust me, it, it, it will serve you well. But they were thinking, I imagine, um, if only we could have been there, if only we could have seen him, if only we could have talked with him. And Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus takes them to task for being so thick-headed and unbelieving. And then he pulls out his copy of Easter for Dummies. <laughs> which is actually the Old Testament. And he walks them through what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. It says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The whole Old Testament had been pointing to a Messiah that had to, had to suffer and die to bear the sins of men and then be raised again. Have you ever wondered exactly what Jesus said? If you've ever read this story before, I'd always, always wonder what he might have said. What, what passages did he, did he go to? Um, some have suggested that he actually went through every verse of the Old Testament and explained how that particular verse connected to him. I doubt it. Um, it wasn't that long a walk. He wouldn't have had time to do that. So it's probably more of a big picture kind of telling of the story how God in love had created people, but those people had rebelled against him and gone their own way. And the Old Testament is the story of God's loving pursuit of the people he had chosen to be his. Pursuing them through judges and through kings and through prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, who some, as much as 700 years before Christ came, wrote this prophecy. He said, of the suffering servant who is to come, he said, he is wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, Old Testament prophets were, were consistently pointing to the one who would come, the deliverer, the redeemer, the, the suffering servant. And different people have counted up those prophecies in different ways. In his book, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell says there are about 61 prophecies. And somebody, somebody who is good with numbers did a statistical analysis of the probability that just eight of those central prophecies, eight of those 61 would be fulfilled in any one man uh, from the time of Jesus through the present day. 
And what they came up with was 1 times 10 to the 17th power was the likelihood that eight of those prophecies would be filled in any one man. That would be one in 100 quadrillion, and a quadrillion is a thousand billion, if that, if that helps you. It didn't help me. So um, he illustrates it real practically. He says, take a quadrillion of those silver dollars. And he said, dump them into the state of Texas, and that would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. And then you take one of those silver dollars, and you mark it. And then you stir it thoroughly somewhere in the midst of all those quadrillion silver dollars that are burying Texas two feet deep. And then you blindfold someone, and you have them walk as far as they want to walk and randomly pick up a silver dollar. And if they pick up the marked silver dollar, he says, that's the probability that anyone in history um, from the time of Christ until now would have fulfilled just eight of those prophecies about the coming Messiah. Eight of those prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. These fulfilled prophecies are really compelling when you think about them. But Jesus, though I'm sure he cited the prophets to them, he seemed to love stories more than statistics, uh, thankfully. And so I wonder if he told them some of the great stories that pointed him in the Old Testament. He might have told them about the Passover, where this horrible plague was coming upon the Egyptians and the firstborn of all of God's people were spared by the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. And Jesus would say, and I am that lamb. And then maybe he told them the story in the Exodus when there was a horrible plague once again on the people and they were all dying. And, and God said to Moses, you know, raise up a, a bronze serpent on a pole and um, if anyone looks in faith at that symbol lifted up, they'll be spared, they'll be saved. And Jesus would say, I am the one lifted up. I imagine there were lots of those kind of stories. I, I wonder if he told them the story about Hosea. Hosea was a prophet. That's somebody that God speaks to and then relays a message to God's people. Um, he, he was a prophet about seven or 800 years before Jesus lived, and it was a dark time when God's people were under military captivity. And as a prophet, they were often given words to speak, but sometimes in order to shock God's people, they were also given actions to carry out symbolic actions. Um, and so prophets do crazy things in the Old Testament, shocking things. Um, one of them walked around naked as he spoke. One of them laid on his side on the ground for about a year. One of them wore a yoke about his neck as he walked throughout the city to symbolize slavery. Um, they were, these actions were intended to shock the people with the message of God. And so Hosea, his symbolic action that God gave to him was through his marriage. But it was nonetheless shocking. Um, in Hosea chapter 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, so this is the first message, probably, that God ever gave to Hosea. This is what the Lord said. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Okay, now that's, that's subtle. Um, with unmistakable clarity, God tells his prophet to marry a prostitute. Okay. Some say that she would become a prostitute eventually, wasn't yet, but this is evidently her character at least, if not her vocation and practice before Hosea would take her to be his bride. So I'm sure 
against the counsel of, of his friends and family, Hosea the prophet takes a prostitute named Gomer to be his bride. A great name, by the way, to cross off your list for future daughters. Okay? Gomer, no. Okay? That's not, not, a, not a great name for daughters. And he loves her. And she bears him three children. And then the unbearable happens. She, who has been so undeservedly loved by Hosea, leaves him in spite of his love for her. And she leaves him in search of other lovers. And now he bears the shame of betrayal atop all others, the doubts and the questioning, the bitterness and the anger. And then God speaks to him again. And it's made clear to him what it is that he must do. And I imagine this was an even more difficult message than the first. God says to him in chapter 3 of Hosea, The Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Hosea was to pursue his wayward bride in love and buy her back. That language, buy her back, um, cracks the door and lets us get just a glimpse into the room where Gomer, his wife, had descended to. Was Hosea out wandering the streets at night, going from alley to alley and brothel to brothel, searching for his bride? Did he find her there, enslaved to another man, used by other men? Or maybe it was during the day, maybe it was at an auction, wearing the garb of a whore or the rags of a harlot that had been used up and perhaps even standing there naked before the men of the city as they bid on her. And Hosea stands there and he participates in the bidding and he buys back his own bride from another. Because of his love, he wins that bidding and he takes her home again to love her still. Why would God require his prophet to marry a prostitute? Why would he have him pursue her when she had been so publicly unfaithful? In the verse I just read, I skipped a phrase. Let me read it to you again. The Lord said to me, Hosea says, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. See, Hosea is God's rich portrayal of what God's love is like towards his own wayward people, towards, towards people like us. God has Hosea model his love for us. God in this story is who Hosea represents, and Gomer in the story is who represents us. Most of us would resist the description of unfaithful, let alone the title of prostitute, but the Bible teaches that every one of us has been wayward spiritually. Isaiah said, we read it, he said, we have turned everyone to his own way. Paul would simply say, we have all sinned. Hosea shows us what God's love is like. His is a love that chooses the undeserving, even people just like us. Not because of, 
but in spite of who we have become and what we have done. So when God says, I will take for myself a wife, and he chooses us, he does it with his eyes wide open, knowing that we are bent to be spiritually unfaithful, to go our own way. You know, we often think of being chosen uh, by God in the way that uh, we would choose naturally. Um, an example, uh, the way Google, the company Google, chooses their employees. A few years back, uh, their company was booming and they were hiring like crazy, but they only wanted to hire the best of the best. So they put up a billboard along highways in major cities, and this is what the billboard read. If that made any sense of you, to you at all, you were directed at the bottom of the billboard to a website with another uh, kind of a brain puzzler uh, kind of thing. And uh, these, those smart enough to decipher that were taken to an internet, an internal Google page that praised your big, magnificent brain and invited you to apply for a job. Okay. But God chooses differently. He chooses those whom he knows will fail and have already failed. We're studying the book of Deuteronomy on Sunday mornings um, these days. We looked at chapter 9 last week. God said to them, to his people then, Know therefore the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. He chooses, God does, in spite of, not because of. If you think God chose you because you're somebody special, uh, let me tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories. A number of you have heard it before goes like this. Not long ago, there was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who pulled into a service station to get gas. He went inside to pay, and when he came out, he noticed his wife engaged in a deep discussion with a service station attendant. It turned out that she knew him. In fact, back in high school, before she met her eventual husband, she used to date this man. So the CEO got in the car, and the two drove in silence, and he's feeling pretty good about himself when he finally spoke, and he says... I bet I know what you're thinking. I bet you're thinking you're glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, and not him, a service station attendant. She says, no, I was thinking if I'd married him, he'd be a Fortune 500 CEO, and you'd be a service station attendant. <laughs> See, with an unexplainable love, God chooses us not because we are Fortune 500 CEOs. Not when we have gotten our act together first and then God chooses us. But in our fallenness, when we are still active in the profession, so to speak. Then, even then, perhaps especially then, God loves us. To know the love of God as Father is to know what it means to be chosen when we do not deserve it. To be loved in spite of, not merely because of who we are. This is a love, God's love is a love that chooses the undeserving and it pursues them relentlessly. God said to Hosea, go again and love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Go again, God says. So Hosea pursues. He never gives up. He never stops loving. He loves in spite of her betrayal, in spite of her unfaithfulness, ungratefulness, abandonment, 
in spite of what others will think or what they would advise. He lovingly pursues because he is to love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And God's is a love that pursues, never gives up. John Ortberg compares it to the child's game of hide-and-seek. He says, hide-and-seek is a simple game. One person seeks, everyone else hides, hence the name. It is most fun, he says, for those who hide, because when you hide, you get to choose where you go. When you hide, you get to keep your eyes open. Those who hide are in control. Everyone wants to hide. The hard job is to be the seeker. The seeker deliberately allows those who hide to get away. The seeker places herself in the humble position of searching on and on for people who deliberately evade her, who laugh at her. No one wants to be the seeker. He says the one who searches does not even get much of a title. In other games, the pivotal player at least gets a high-profile name, the center, the pitcher, the goalkeeper. The one who searches in hide-and-seek is simply called it. Not Captain It, not Chief Executive It, just It. In fact, the call that starts the game is simply, not It. Whoever is It will have to be very patient. It will have to search long and hard. It will have to face evasion and trickery. And then he says, the story of God and the human race is a story of hide and seek. Hosea is acting it out for all to see the simple truth that God lovingly pursues us. He is relentlessly seeking after us to restore us to a right relationship to Him no matter what it costs. His is a love that chooses and never gives up. It pursues and it pays a great price. It's interesting. In Hosea's story, he says, I bought her. At that auction, he says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. It's the price of a female slave, but only half of it did he pay in cash. And I can't help but wonder if that wasn't because he didn't have the whole price in cash. If he had to supplement the coinage with the barley, if, if he had to give the very food that he needed to eat, to buy this woman. It seems that it may have cost Hosea virtually all that he had. See, Hosea was loving Gomer the way God loves us. And I think that is what Jesus told those two disciples on that road. I think that's what he said, that's why he said the Messiah had to die. I don't know that he used Hosea's story. He could have. But I am absolutely sure that he explained that the Messiah had to suffer and die because God loves so powerfully those of us who are in great need and are so wholly undeserving of it. The New Testament beautifully puts it this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Back on that road in Emmaus, 
they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged Jesus strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they, they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. See, now they see, now they get it at last through Jesus' careful divine explanation of what the scriptures said about his suffering and his glory and through the breaking of the bread. Perhaps they'd heard that the night before he had broken the bread at that meal with his disciples where he'd taken bread and broken it and it represented the breaking of his own body on the cross. And this, this understanding completely reverses their direction. They leave Emmaus at that hour, though it was night, and return to Jerusalem. Why? Because their friends were there who desperately needed that same hope. Peter and Thomas were there, and the women and James were there, and they needed to know that Jesus really had risen. They need despair no longer. It was all true. And in a sense, I think that is what Easter really offers each one of us. It offers us a hope that can even transcend death. A hope and a love that can free you from your darkest secrets, from the deepest snares, from unfading memories, and, and sins that will not let you go. It's about a love that welcomes you home and invites you to stop hiding. Listen again to John Ortberg as he continues to talk about hide-and-seek and the love of God. He says, at the end of the game, if someone hides too well, it will yell the words that end the game. It cups its hands and hollers so that the cry can be heard throughout the whole neighborhood. Ollie, ollie, oxen free! No one knows quite what that cry means or where it came from. He suggests Latin, perhaps, for liberate the oxen. Who knows? He says, no one knows what it means, but hiders know what it means. It means you can come home. It means you're safe. You will not be chased or hurt or penalized. You can return like the prodigal son coming home to the fatted calf. Stop hiding. Come home. It's a cry of grace. To all who want to hide, he says, who need to be sought, who are confused about being found, God has spoken in Jesus Christ. Ali, ali, oxen free, God says. Come out, come out wherever you are. The time for hiding is over. The time for coming home has arrived. No penalties, no punishments, no getting caught. Just come home. Trust me. Paul says, God shows his love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why the Messiah, the Christ, had to suffer and die. To make a way for you to know the love of God, the costly, seeking, undeserved love of God. And the celebration of Easter is the extension of that relationship of love to you on behalf of God. This morning, no matter how undeserving you feel, Christ died for sinners to show the love of God for them and to make a way for them to come home to the Father. Let's pray together. Lord, be kind to those of us who struggle to believe this which is so hard to believe, that a man could rise from the dead on the third day, but perhaps even harder, that you could love us without us having to fix ourselves first. That because of what Christ has done, there is a way for us back to, to you. That he paid the penalty for our sins. And now we can walk with you. We can know you. We can live with you even forever. And so, Lord, I pray that in mercy, you might grant that faith to any who are in need of it this morning and strengthen the faith of those of us who do believe. We worship you and we thank you for this greatest of demonstrations of your love on the cross and of your power in the empty tomb. Praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.